This is a podcast from Meow.net. Meow! Connecting people working for cultural democracy in Europe and America, this is a culture of possibility. With Arlene Goldbard and Francois Matarasso. Welcome to episode 31 of A Culture of Possibility. This is a podcast at meow.net about community-based art, cultural democracy, cultural policy, all related things. And we're, we're very excited today to have special guests. I'm Arlene Goldbard, and I'm speaking to you from Lamy, New Mexico, which is just outside Santa Fe, New Mexico, in the southwest of the United States. And I'm going to... Um, hand this over to my co-host, Francois, to introduce himself. And then let me say a word before um, Maribel Lagarda and Beng Kabangang come on with us. Francois. Hello, I'm Francois Matarasso. I'm uh, speaking to you from uh, home in the Morvan in central France, where uh, it's 30 degrees today, but uh, not as hot as in the heat wave further south, fortunately for me. Thanks, Francois. The reason I wanted to say a word is because I met Maribel in Italy in 1982. (laughs) And many, many things stick out for me. She was just like a great person to come to an event at the Rockefeller Study Center at Bellagio, which is a very fancy and glamorous kind of place, with people from 15 different countries um, in preparation for uh, getting to know each other and writing the anthology Community, Culture, and Globalization, which I I co-edited. And I remember many things about her, including this fantastic exercise she led us all in that was based on picking a Beatles song. And I was like, will everyone know a Beatles song? And everyone knew all the Beatles songs. So that was quite interesting cultural information. And also, Maribel, you're the first person I know who brought her own coffee-making equipment to a retreat like that. (laughs) And that stood out for me, too. So um, I'm so happy to have you here along with your colleague, Bang. And and why don't each of you, in turn, just give the short intro now. You know, where are you talking from? Your name? What is your work? And then we'll go more into all those questions. Hi, my name is Maribel Garda. I am the Artistic Director of the Philippine Educational Theatre Association. We're more better known as PETA. And we are from the Philippines. Uh, our our theatre is based in Quezon City, which is in Metro Manila. Thank you, Maribel. Beng. Hello, everybody. I'm Beng Kabangon. I'm the Executive Director of PETA. And I am now here in Quezon City, not at the PETA Theater Center, at my home in Quezon City, uh, located in Metro Manila, which is the capital of the Philippines. Thank you, Bang, and thank you, Maribel. We're so excited to have you. Um, and also, uh, I mean, for two, th- three, four reasons, uh, because I love Maribel, because PETA is such a great organization, and because we haven't had anybody from your part of the world before, and, and, and we're so excited to do that. The, um, I guess we would uh, like to start by situating uh, listeners in the trajectory of your work, because you've both worked for a long time in, in related fields and are really accomplished. So 
Maribel, do you do you want to start and just? Uh, am I right in thinking that you started at PETA as a kid, taking workshops and and worked your way up to artistic director? Yeah. Well, um, I I started in PETA by taking a summer workshop. Uh, a lot of us actually, the leaders now, started by taking a summer workshop in the company because that's a regular fair that we have. Um, Bang also, Bang even started as a teen teenager. Uh, uh, we call that the Metropolitan Teen Theater League. It's been really a good source of uh, developing young artist teachers who later on become leaders in the company. So most of us started by start, um, taking a workshop. So I started mine in, okay, I'll be honest, it was 1978. I'm so old. Um, and and uh, after I did that summer workshop, I was in college then. I I joined the, the company because there's a regular recruitment that happens at that time. And um, I guess I have never left since. I maybe took a year or two break between that, that long period of time. And um, But since I joined the company as a young member, I've stayed. And yes, I've moved through pretty much um, the different uh, pro programs that we've done. I mean, but primarily, actually, my, my, my area has been Kalinangan Ensemble, which is um, cultural ensemble. That is basically the theater arm of PETA. So I've been working around the different um, aspects of that ever since I was in my, you know, like, 18, 19, and, and so on. And and yeah, and I've been there for, for, for quite some time, working around uh developing productions whether for uh, mobile or our main season or our advocacy work and other works fantastic thanks maribel and listeners we're going to link you at the meow.net website to the peta website and, and any other links that you guys want us to use so people can go deeper into into this stuff well bang give us an introduction to how you got involved in your roles and so forth uh, as Maribel has mentioned, I started in PETA when I was a teenager. I think I was in second year high school when I joined PETA via the teen theater or the youth theater program of PETA. And I think that was how we got uh, infected by the PETA bug. No? Uh, and uh, one thing that's very uh, fantastic about that youth program of PETA is as young as we were then, we were already taught how to, you know, how to become artists, how to become teachers also, young people teaching other young people. And I think more importantly, uh, it's also, PETA has taught us at a very young age, what is the value of uh, being an artist teacher of PETA. And so young as we were then, we already knew that, uh, uh, this kind of theater that we are doing and pursuing in PETA is something that is not only good for ourselves, but it's something that, uh, you know, we can use uh, in our schools uh, and much later in, in, in our communities and the bigger picture of society, etc. Uh, like Maribel, I think we never, I also uh, never really left except you know, every now and then you take a year off because of school uh, and other other um, personal concerns. Uh, I became executive director. I joined, hold on. I joined MTTL in 1980, I think, the youth theater program. And then I became executive director in 1992. 
Uh, I remember uh, Maribel and I, we would consider ourselves at the time reluctant leaders. Uh, we were elected by the PETA membership. And uh, yes, we were reluctant, but at the same time, uh, a responsibility was given to us. And so we took it on. Uh, as an executive director, of course, by virtue of what the task is, I'm really in charge of overall management of the of the company, looking after the different aspects. Maribel mentioned that she was, as artistic director, she's more focused on the uh, performance program of PETA. But equally important uh, in PETA's work is also our education or our teaching program. Thank you. You know, Francois has a question, but I wanted to ask you some first just to situate listeners quickly in Metro Manila, which is where you guys are located, right? And imagine that people have never been to the Philippines. They don't know anything about it. You know, what's, what are the communities you serve? Tell us a little bit about those conditions, and then we'll go to, to Francois's question. Okay. A, a little bit of backtrack, Arlene, huh? Uh, okay. We are a 55-year-old theater company. We were for, uh, established in 1967. So you could see that PETA has journeyed to the various and interesting historical moments of our country. Okay, uh, At the very beginning, PETA was founded in a context where we were in a very post-colonial context. Uh, our founder thought of a theater company that would champion Filipino theater because at that time there were there were there were lots of theater happenings in the country but a lot but dominated by by uh, the use of the English language and so she thought that it would be good to come up with a company that produces works in Filipino and that so that it could be better understood and so that the audience can better relate to the place and at the same time that it embodies the stories of the Filipinos. And that was 1967. Five years later, martial law was declared in our country. So uh, that's like, what, more than 10 years of martial rule. And PETA also learned how to navigate itself in a country that is where there is much repression, where there is major censorship, where freedom of expression is challenged. And so Maribel maybe later can talk about how what we did creatively to be able to still convey very important messages, but at a time when there's so much repression. And then 1986, for our listeners, uh, there is the what we call the EDSA people power. That was the moment when then Ferdinand Marcos Sr. Uh, was uh, ousted uh, via a peaceful, uh, you know, peaceful movement in the country. And democracy was re-established in the country. So again, PETA had to find its new bearing. After such a long time of repression, now what? We have democracy. How do we now stay relevant in a different context? And much later, we can share to you what, you know, how, how we were able to, um, uh, transform the kind of work that we're doing by, and yet still maintaining the very essence of what PETA is, no? So having said that, um, in the various periods of PETA's history, we've actually partnered with so many communities from top north, uh, Batanes, all the way to down south in Mindanao. Uh, PETA would usually partner with schools, many, many, many schools, 
we would also partner with communities. In the beginning, we would usually go and work with communities that have a strong, um, how do we call this, church support. Uh, because, you know, uh, the Philippines is largely a Catholic country and there's a, there's a huge, uh, huge network of uh, social action uh, centers here that's largely uh, church-based and they support many communities. So uh, especially during the 70s, PETA would usually work with communities via this organized network of social action centers of the church. And then much later, we began expanding our community networks. Uh, I think at the height of our community and school engagement, we would average anything from about 100 to almost 200 partners all over the country at different levels and types of partnerships with these communities. And uh, I would say that that experience of PETA working with the communities, it, it's really not about us working for the communities. Honestly, I think we learned a lot also from working with them because as we would always say, uh, our experience of working with the communities has helped ground our uh, artistic practice as artist teachers. No? Uh, and uh, during the 80s, uh, one major offshoot of our engagement with the communities, and that's largely through workshops, is the formation of many community-based theater groups uh, in different parts of the country. No? Uh, up to now, we continue that. Our community partner engagement and school engagement may not be that many anymore, but that is still existing. And yes, we still do have partners in, in, from the north, from Metro Manila, in the, in the Visayas, which is the central part of the Philippines, and, and Mindanao. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Bang. Um, I, I, I just wanted to ask um, either you or Mary Bell to, to, to give us a sense of a typical week in, in PETA because you, you're a complex organization. So you're, you're presenting theater. You're also doing workshops online. You're doing work in schools. You're doing this whole spectrum of things. So could you give us a sense of what uh, a typical week looks like for you of what kind of activities and who's coming to to use you and what you're doing outside the building <laughs> like today it was really very busy because now we have our summer workshop um i was going to ask you what you mean pre-pandemic or you know uh, post-pandemic but uh we're, we're coming back to live uh this year we've really picked up of course obviously obviously in, in the pandemic we, well we can talk about that later no? but but now we've, we've picked up so we're very busy with summer workshop uh which and we have like children and uh, today we had the final showcase of the children and teen theater musical teen theater so that, that's like a 12 session course and we had another batch before that so we're pretty busy doing that we're also in the in, in all of that we also have uh, preparing for the coming shows and seasons that we're going season that's coming we are rerunning a play that we did in from February to, to May, we're going to rerun that in October, so we're preparing for that. At the same time that we're doing that, we also have other teachers are preparing for our community project with Kiyo. I think Peng would better explain that. No, these are our, our, our new 
not really new, but are the ways now that we are continuing our work with the community. So that that's another thing. So we have one set of teachers doing summer workshop, another one doing community workshop outside, and then we have our artists and production people preparing for the oncoming plays. At the same time, we also have an arm which we call a, a, a theater. Uh, a theater plus because we realized that you know in the philippines we don't have support we generate all our funding all right so it's not enough for us to just produce our shows we've also um entered uh, uh what we call um like uh line production and producing work for other companies and events and here we are able to charge more and this monies is what we use to also funnel back into the company to to, to you know to support it so that and then, of course, we have our whole marketing arm. Uh, if there's anything that we've learned throughout all these years, it's really just not enough to produce. We also have to be able to sell our uh, production so that we can generate uh, finance. Sustainability uh, was a big question in the 80s. Uh, we were able to, we were funded by huge agencies, um, you know. But when that question of sustainability and funding got cut for all developing countries that happened to almost everybody, right? That sustainability issue which happened to us, but late 80s, right? Or something like that. 80s really was something that threw, threw us off because for quite a, a number of years, we were, we were you know, dependent on um, uh, funding from abroad, um, not the Philippines, from abroad. And when they said that was going to stop, you know, it we, it really scrambled. You know, it scrambled with our heads and everything. But at the end of the day, we had to deal with that, and we did. So we, it was a long process of trying to find out how art can also find its sustainability and um you know form of independence from uh financial you know um you know uh, support from the outside. By the time the pandemic hit, actually, the Kalinangan Ensemble, which is uh, I'm artistic director of, was already at that point where it was sustainable. It was producing its own money. It wasn't dependent on funding. But unfortunately, the pandemic happened, and that you know really threw a you know a wrench in in our in our, our whole uh, But um, now we're happy that it's it, it's coming back. Is it a full week? It's very. Um, before we were really trying to do a mixed work from home kind of thing but like now when 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 both all our training and production and other community work happens the the our our offices are very very busy bang i don't know if she had. i just wanted to share that we've been referring to members so we call our members artist teachers so the same set of people uh who are part of a production are the same set of people who are actually executing and implementing the various workshops. No? I know that in other countries, it's a different setup. But in our case, that is our, our key concept that uh, you are an artist, but uh, the skills, the knowledge that you know as an artist, you should be able to share it uh, with our community partners, the schools, etc., etc. And that experience that you get from the community, you should be able to plow that back in in your in our practice as artist teachers so uh right now we have about 80 uh members active members uh but these are all uh except for those who are hired as staff and that includes me and maribel uh the others are really freelancers no they are not uh fully employed in peta so you could imagine that they also have to balance a life of doing peta work 
and at the same time doing work outside so it's not all the time that you have 80 members so you heard what maribel was talking about so you you could find yourself uh meeting in the morning teaching in the afternoon rehearsing in the evening and that could be a typical day for a very very active peta member who could end up being very tired but i would like to think also very fulfilled from that entire experience but it could get crazy sometimes because apart from doing all the performances and the workshops as maribel said uh we also have a building a center that we also have to manage so uh so many layers now of things to think about and just while we're we're um talking about the the basics um can you i know one of the things that you've done is uh go online so there's a lot of online workshops that that you're offering but also can you say a little bit about um the balance between what work you do in Metro Manila and what work you do in other parts of the country and how you how you manage to 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 handle all of that all right okay I'll begin um, the way we've designed for instance our performances as I mentioned earlier we have a center so usually we have performances designed to be performed at the, to be performed at the Peta theater center uh, there are plays that are just for the Peta Theater Center because of the way it was uh, mounted. But at the same time, especially before the pandemic, uh, we always make sure that we have one play, that we can, at least one play, that we can perform at the Peta Theater Center, but it is also designed for touring. Uh, and by touring, uh, we'd like touring within Metro Manila, and uh, when, when there are more invitations, touring also outside of Metro Manila. That's one. For the workshops, uh, currently we have several programs uh, that are designed really to implement workshops and education uh, activities uh, not limited within our partners in Metro Manila. So, for example, our program on theater in education, arts education, that uh, caters to teacher training and young people's training and curriculum development and influencing the basic ed curriculum focus on arts education, that is really designed to have X number of partners from Metro Manila and X number of partners in different parts of the region. And therefore, and therefore you, we have a dedicated number of artist teachers really set to implement those various uh, training, training activities. Uh, how do we balance? Um, do we? <laughs> we just let the universe. We just let the universe take over that balancing. But no. But but I guess I I guess what I'm really trying to say is um, we always tell ourselves that even if you know you know doing art education, theater education, doing performances is really becoming more expensive now. And the uh, subsidy for it is quite limited. So sometimes the tendency is to get restricted at the theater center or to get restricted at Metro Manila. But I think because it is in the consciousness of PETA that our theater life cannot just be limited here. We really try our very best to make an effort to allow us to go out 
to go out of our of our home, the theater center, and to go out of Metro Manila. That's really a conscious effort. We do not succeed all the time, but I think it is really ingrained in our consciousness that no, we cannot just be here. We have to be able to, you know, to to do our extension and outreach program uh, beyond Metro Manila. Sorry, Bell. Also, I think I think it's also because we uh, when we. When PETO was established, the whole idea was to really develop this national theater, to do workshops, to develop groups. And I think PETO was successful in creating those, you know, groups um, outside um, uh, Metro Manila, in Mindanao, in the Visayas. We were three, you know, we have Luzon, Visayas, in Mindanao. Those are the three big, you know, land. And we were successful. And a lot now of these workshops are really being taken on. And other groups have grown from those seeds that we planted. And so in a way, it's really also a good thing that they themselves run their own programs like I'm going to Bohol next week to do a, a directing workshop right that one of the PETA people it's one of the founding members Gardinabad moved back there and has ex, ex, also expanded what he's do, he did for, for PETA he's also doing there in that region no, with this um, cultural tourism as well with a different take given the conditions in that and at the same time also trying to train the young artists there by some and by this time we, we are invited to do special workshops and the same thing down the line so in a way for us in metro manila obviously for oh we miss because we used to go there more often but i think that's part of growing also it, a community of artists have also developed there and that was the the intention and the objective so in a way it also pushes us uh, to try to imagine what could be our new roles, what could be the new things we're learning and developing no, to strengthen because to strengthen community art, culture, and stuff like that. Because the challenges never end. I mean, it's just constant, right? Uh, from our education, the quality of the education in the Philippines, the art, and there's no real support for the art. And so you really have to develop that on your own, sustainability issues. So even, so now, I think it, it's not just about sharing um, aesthetics or pedagogy. We're also talking about cultural management. You know what I mean? Even the discourse has grown oh, across the Philippines. And I think, I think it's a good thing, you know. But like I said, of course, us, the younger generation will miss the, the chances we had to travel and, you know, just integrate and stuff like that. But we try to do it as much as we can, given the existing uh, programs that we have. Oh. Yeah, great. Well, you, you know, I want to correct something, Maribel, at the beginning. I think I said 1982. I am so lost in space. 2002 is when that book came out. Um, she would have been so, like 16 when I met her and she was a grown-up person. So. Probably my mental age. <laughs> um, my mental age. But, and I still make, bring my own coffee. I bet. You make the best coffee. <laughs> um, well, you both, you've mentioned the, the, the pandemic and obviously that made a massive change, you know, from being able to bring people into the theater center to having everything basically be virtual and online. I wanted to ask you, because I think you made a huge shift, um, a successful one, it sounds like, because here you still are during that period of time. But I've seen when I clicked around your website, you had this serial. Is it, is it pronounced Rock of Ages or how did you, how do you say it? 
Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, okay. Ages. Ages, okay. Tell about this. Tell about how that came into being. Tell about what you did during this period of time to sustain the relationships with people, to sustain the artist teachers and so forth. <laughs> uh, we, we, when the pandemic happened, I think it took us a month or so to gather our wits and say, we got to do something about these guys. No? Because like, under, unlike other companies in the Philippines, we have a whole center and uh at the time, we had like 40 people no, to support who are full-time. and So it was really quite uh, sh- shaking for us. So we pivoted maybe, I think, a month no, uh, when we started discussing, uh, so what are we going to do to, to get online? Um, and we um, also had to understand that. We were fortunate that we have some members who work in advertising who helped us organize that. And then at the same time, we started to do... Things online, which was the the one of Leeloy Diba. It's just giving free workshops. It started like that. And then later we started doing, um, again, storytelling. You know, it, it, all the kids were at home and, you know, they needed to, you know. So we do, started doing storytelling Sundays. And then we um, also went through our <laughs> archives only to find out, oh, my God, we didn't document our work really well. So we just tried to get the best of what we and, and put that online as well. Um I'll talk about Rock of Ages now very quickly. A Rock of Ages, um, which sounds like Rock of Ages, the play, is really a play that we did in 2014, 16. Um, it was a massive hit. Um, it was, it lasted the seven seasons where we, we kept on doing it every year. And it really made so much money. But, uh, Ages is a band, um, a very famous band, a, karaoke, a band that people love to sing to in karaoke. So their music is really popular. And then we decided to turn that into a jukebox musical. And it was just a massive hit. It's really our, you know, the goose that laid the golden egg for us because Aegis has managed to save PETA <laughs> with the box office return from live to online um, because that's how really big the the um, the, the, the following was. No? Um, it's only not only about the music. I mean, the the, the story of Aegis is about the community who, because it really rains hard in the Philippines, it always gets flooded. And in this community, the flood didn't go down, so their businesses were dying. So how how can they survive? And at first they thought, oh, because you know this, they had this very good singer. She said, uh, you know, let's let's I'll sing in the in the in the flood waters, and people will watch me, and you know, I'll be I'll be famous. I'll go to Oprah. So that was the thing. And when they were becoming famous that way. People started to question, but this isn't who we are. This is a flood. It's not about, we make shoes. And this shoes, this story, as actually one of our, uh, the writer herself, we, we do uh, workshops with communities that are hit by floods and stuff like that. No? And this, she went to a community of, of shoemakers, and this was the issue that their community was so flooded. So that was actually inspired by what one of our writer, artist teachers uh, experience and 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 it just grew uh, because I think it was funny. It had very popular music. It had wonderful singers, and I really sort of heartfelt. It so it lasted us for seven years, and that's one of the things that actually really um, sort of helped um, Peta through three years of a very difficult time. I think Ben should <laughs> share also. She's really on top of this during the last three years. Now, just to add on to what Maribel said, so apart from the workshops, in the beginning, it was just free workshop. Our intention was we just wanted presencing. We just wanted our public just to feel that, hey, we're still around. 
And then much later, we discovered, oh, we can actually do workshops online and earn a little from it because we were really struggling. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard enough that in this country, during the pandemic, theater was declared non-essential. So we were really struggling. Uh, our members got displaced. And uh, with whatever little monies we have in PETA, we also had to do some, you know, some sort of little donation for our members because for some, it really hit them hard because it's like no job. Yesterday, I had a job. Tomorrow, no more, none. We were in the middle of a play. This, I always like to say this. We were in the middle of a play about the HIV virus and a virus stopped that play. And so, you, you know, actors were about to go to the theater and then we were declared lockdown. And that's it. We never saw each other again. And then we just all saw each other. All of a sudden, Zoom became the fashion. Anyway, so we did workshops online in the beginning for free. Much later, we could now charge. And then we discovered, oh, there is such thing as online streaming. So with whatever, whatever archival, uh, you know, whatever place we have in our, uh, on our archives, that's some kind, you know, okay quality. We started streaming that. Oh my gosh, you could just imagine the amount of editing, editing and technical magic that we had to do with Rack of Ages because the video wasn't exactly fantastic, but we wanted to stream it. So we had to fix it. And then, but I think this is the interesting part. Once we kind of got the hang of it, we also discovered that it is important that even if we're online, we should continue our relationship with our partners. And guess what we did? We organized festivals with our partners. Yeah, so that's what we did online. So we were doing workshops online with our partners in the schools, in the communities. At least whoever can have data. You know, this is the Philippines. We're just 65%, I think, data access in this country. But anyway, so after those workshops, our partners would come up with their snippets of stories. We assembled that together and came up with online festivals an online festival on children's rights, an online festival on, um, how do you call this? On, uh, it's like uh, 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 on safety and resiliency, etc., uh, etc. Et and then much later, we were already actively doing online advocacy via the uh, online advocacy using uh, uh, existing material, video materials of PETA let's say one on the elections and then we would couple it with talk back with with the with the viewers and we did this in time for the elections of of 2022 we tried our best we tried our best we contributed our bit uh so i i guess I, I, what i'm trying to say is we also discovered uh what great possibility there is online uh, and that, yes, we could continue to be connected with our partners. It wasn't only our members who got displaced, but that sudden, you know, cut of relationship with all of our partners, it was important. And, and, and I, I guess we're truly happy also in PETA that we were able to transform ourselves and adapt ourselves easily. Well, not easily, with a lot of difficulty, but nevertheless, we were able to adapt ourselves to the you know, to the digital platform. Yeah. One of the things that I've just always been impressed by the entire history of PETA is how 
resourceful and flexible you are. I mean, it's political conditions change, you retool. You know, health conditions change, you retool. Floods come, you retool. And I just want to applaud you for that. I think, you know, some people were done in by the same circumstances where you managed to find your footing, you know, and, and move forward in a new way. So A for you guys. A Francois, the question. Yeah. I echo what you say, and I mean, the title of our podcast is A Culture of Possibility, and I think you embody a culture of possibility in PETA. Um, I did want to, to ask about, um, I've, I've uh, met and spoken to, to a number of artists and organizations working in, shall we say, difficult political um, situations, um, where freedom of speech, freedom sometimes to operate is is very difficult and i wonder you've alluded all already to the period of martial law and to the other uh political changes that there have been in the philippines during the 50 years more than 50 years that that peta has has um has been operating can you say a little bit about how you have uh in to use arlene's word retooled to to um to to manage to survive in in all of these different political environments and how you've managed to to stay true to your values uh which are i guess are not always those of of the the government in power i i think like in the 70s um uh when it was during the marcos period we we did like what we call theater of detour right so we sort of like did allegorical plays and then we did historical plays and basically it's all allegory tours and um stuff or we went to the streets and and changed our name <laughs> you know what i mean um so so like that it, i mean there there was some kind of pressure but i i think pet has been fortunate that you know uh, and then when the 80s came, when when Marcos left and it was the, the period of the democratic space, we, we had to also rethink, okay, how are we going to talk about our our our, our messages that we we would be able to reach people? No? And then then I think the framework we we came like human rights, um, and 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 how we tried to tell our stories that was more like um, not not with the grand narratives and you know ibagsak and all that stuff, sort of like. Yeah, you know, a fire and brimstone kind of thing, but try to make it more human and, and stuff like that. So, and then now with all of that, we also came into, oh, there's this big batch of, uh, there's this audience segment that has money, can come and support. How do we create shows that kind of draw them in? Our content is there, but it's a little bit more, you know, um, and oh, they like music and it should be comedic. So we've really been trying to develop these Place. I think Rock of Ages was the was the big parang embodiment of that. But we've been doing that for years, trying to find that that mix where we can, we can talk about our content, we can talk about our ideas of um you know uh, freedom, democracy, whatever. But we it's so palatable and it's fun and it's it's shaped into art that people can you know uh, accept, diba? So that's been. Constant, uh, parang that never stops. That's it's a constant reflection on okay, how do we tell our stories now? Now, when the election happened, and like Ben was saying, we know we tried our best to help contribute in trying to make what we feel Santa could have been a better help. We turned out 31 million Filipinos voted for the Marcos for uh, uh, Mark Bongo Marcos. Um, 
and brought back the whole family. You know what I mean? Really in it's ano, parang wow. That was a big blow. Um, the pandemic, but actually, for us in PETA and a lot of artists, between the pandemic and the result of the elections, it really left us, I must say, our, you know, <laughs> our headspace was really, as the young people like to say right now, really bad, you know. I mean, um, wow, diba? We spent all our years where we ineffective, where we, you know, so now, given of that happened, we're again on the roll, reflecting, studying, what is it? How can we tell New new stories, new ways of telling stories. It really, I know, and um, and that's why at the end of the year we have like a festival of new narratives. Again, I think Ben can talk about that more. So, um, where we hope to try to experiment and explore these new narratives. How do we talk, not to the choir, but how do we talk? Can we talk to the thirty-one million Filipinos who voted for Marcoses for the Marcoses? They're not bad people, as I'm, and they're not like poor and uneducated, and you, you know, the, the usual thing. No, they're not. <laughs> they're quite educated, quite rich. How do we deal with fake news? How do we deal with the whole social media? So I guess what's, in, I guess, PETA lives because we're constantly trying to connect ourselves with that. And those questions and, and, and exploring and developing stories, it doesn't stop. That's why the work can be quite tiring. Huh? I, I mean, it, it's... Because it, it doesn't settle, you know. It tries to... We were sort of settling and then the pandemic happened and boom, you know. Nope. Um, God said, thou shall not rest. So, I guess, you know, that it's really, really a constant reflection and practice and, you know, that we have to keep on doing. Bang. Yeah, I guess that's... that's well, just to add, uh, two more things. Of course, partnerships really help. Because, uh, you know, our engagement with different uh, organizations, different people, also helps us in the reflection process. Uh, for example, Maribel is speaking about, okay, so this thing happened last May 2022, and our country is so divided. Uh, we also came from six years of an author- you know, authoritarian uh, government, uh, and, you know, it's People are, we're getting so polarized already here. So, um, how do we talk to them? How do we talk to them uh, so that they do not automatically just say, oh, you, you know, whatever you're saying is biased. I don't want to hear it. It's only because you voted for this uh, candidate. So, and, and that's not what we want. And so, uh, that's why, as Maribel said, we're looking at uh, this festival of new narratives uh, you want to talk about human rights. How do you talk about human rights now? Uh, there is a segment of our society that thinks that human rights is just hashtag privilege. You know, uh, you can talk about human rights because you can, you can talk about social justice because you can access justice. Mm-hmm. I cannot. I can't even find money to feed me. Talk to me about social justice. Uh, there is that gap within what should be and what there is. And so how do you, how do you now create a, 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 a relevant dialogue and conversation with people without, and Maribel is correct, without looking down on them. Because, you know, their situation is valid. You, we totally understand uh, where they are coming from. But, but then again, there are some things that need to be talked about, right? So uh, that's, that's the challenge of the new narratives uh, festival. And learning from the pandemic, we're trying to do it both live and there's also a digital component. Because you were asking about uh, during the uh, what we did during the pandemic. One thing we learned also is, 
oh yes, the digital platform continues to be a a a platform, a useful platform, and therefore that becomes part of our life after life. That there is life beyond life. And so that's something now that we're also trying to grapple if we're going to now put that as part of our seemingly not so busy life. And then let's add on another component, which is the digital component. But but I would say that partnership has helped us um, survive and navigate ourselves through different types of uh, situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in every work that we do, and you were always asking us about communities, uh, there is one thing that we always do. We never enter a community without an organized group to work with. Uh, we never stay in a community for long. So whenever we work with a community, it's important that we have uh, a group who provides us the basic information about the community, provides us the basic and necessary logistical support that might be needed when we work in the community. But more importantly, the partners that we have in the community also make sure that there is some kind of continuity of the work that has been started in the community. And so uh, these partners have also become sources of very good information and advice to PETA in terms of, you know, what's the feel out there? What are the burning issues that need to be addressed? What are the, you know, what, what's, what's, what's the buzz out there? No? And so that's very important to us. And then lastly, 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 uh, of course, it helps also that we're an old company. Uh, I remember you asked, Ask this way, way, way before this podcast began. And yes, in 2017, we got the Ramon Magsaysay Awards. You know, so this uh, Ramon Magsaysay, so they say, is like the equivalent of the Nobel Prize here in Asia. And so on our 50th year, can you imagine that? On our 50th year, Peta was given the Ramon Magsaysay Awards. Small trivia. In 1972, or three, if I'm not mistaken, our founder was given the Ramon Magsaysay Award. And then sometime in the 80s, our executive director then, the film director Lino Broca, also received the Ramon Magsaysay Award. So it's like every, what, 15 years, 20 years. And then finally, the institution got the Ramon Magsaysay Awards. I took a photo of Cecil Guidote, Lino Broca, and then there's the PETA logo there at the Ramon Magsaysay. Uh, so I guess it's, uh, in a way, it's a good uh, affirmation of how the idea of Cecil Guidote evolved through the years and continued to be relevant and uh, up to the present. But it helps. Of course, those recognitions help also an institution that uh, every now and then would try to be more daring, would challenge, uh, you know, would challenge uh, major issues here in the country. Uh, that that helps also, no? Yeah. I think also because PETA was able to go beyond its borders. One of the reasons that I think the Ramon Magsay saw was the work that we did in the Mekong, uh, which was when we brought out our work with um, gender sexuality and tried to share the processes and the pedagogy and the aesthetics that we developed around advocacy and this time relocating it in in, in, in the Mekong region. So that was also very interesting uh, work for PETA. And and I think that's also, I mean, the, the, the way it, that, that 
you know, the the the, 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 the grows. It keeps on growing and, and it's spinning out into that. And it was also very helpful in terms of our practice. And hopefully also at the time we were working with the communities there because we were able to uh, work with communities in the Mekong region as well. Yeah, fantastic. Let me ask you a question because the the political polarization that you're describing and your intention of communicating with people in, in you know, a, with mutuality, with respect, despite, you know, big political differences. That's a global problem at the moment, but I am speaking here from ex-Trump land and possibly, God forbid, Trump land again. So, you know, I have an inkling of, uh, of what you're talking about. So I love that, those aims. And I wonder if there's anything that, that you feel like sharing with people now about how to execute them, you know, like what needs to happen to have a dialogue with, with those 31 million people who voted to bring the Marcos family back? Or, or are you just at this, the developmental stage? Because I don't want to push you to... Okay, our guests are nodding. Maribel, did you want to say something? Yeah. No, we, we are in the developmental stage. I, I mean, honestly, it's something that... We don't have an answer for. We we discuss and it, you know we so I don't want to talk about it. Oh, bang bang! She, she explains so much better than me. Um, new narratives. I mean, I understand it, but you know, turning it into a piece of theater or performance, and you know, that's again, diva. That's another process, and that's hopefully what we're trying to do for the festival in December, diba? To from those ideas, from those, can we turn this into performances? Can we? We have ideas like ah. Let's make a show and seriously, let's just be sure that everybody are pro Marcos, you know, or will we be able to, you know, be understand the lingo? We haven't done that yet, but you know, we're very much been talking about it. So give us until December. Okay. Okay. <laughs> get back to us next year because I think it's really it's a concern not only for us, right? We our partner, I know, is also a media group and I know uh the Kila and they're they've also they they themselves are also leading this and they themselves as journalists, as media people, filmmakers, photo they are themselves are exploring it. And we are trying to partner up. As Ben was saying, I think this is the time for collaboration. Uh partnering up strengthens us, I think, you no, know, because the world is so difficult that you need as many linked arms to try to, you know, plow through all of the the conditions of the world, whether it's political, environmental, mental, whatever. It's just so much to deal with. And then you have a generation of young people who really is so emotional. I'm sorry for it. And it has so much fragility that, you know, some baby boomers like me are like something. Oh, Lord, what do we do with this? And, you know, are we responsible for this? But hey, kids, come on. You know, so it's really layers of things to unpack and to unravel inside, you know. But yeah, we're, we're, there's, all, there's always hope. As long as there's life, there's hope. Uh, so yeah, yeah. But I, again, I think maybe by next year, I, we can share more with regards to this. That'd be great. That'd be great. So, you know, you're talking to folks in, uh, in the U.S., in, in Europe, and we have some listeners in other places around the world, and I'm guessing we didn't touch on something that you really would like people to know about how you're working, how you're thinking, and if that's true, tell us. Maybe is there a project coming up you want to share beyond the, the festival, or do you just 
want to add more to your description of of how and where you're working so that people really have a deep understanding. Um, I'm not sure you do because you've been like super, super in, informative, but I want to open the door and give you an opportunity. Okay. Uh, oh, well, there's one project that we just did. Maybe this is, well, again, it was an experiment. We partnered with an organization called Wise Owl, and they want to look into the TikTok platform uh, uh, and want to talk about democracy via the TikTok platform. The, the whole thing was an experiment. Uh, so they allowed us to create, I think, 24 videos, all what, I think, 30 seconds or one minute or to, 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 you know, to just engage the audience about democracy. And uh, in the beginning, personally, with my age, I could not understand what our young people were doing. I was saying, what is that? What does that have to do with democracy? But and, and when they assessed what we did, I think the first six months, they also saw our difficulty in terms of creating materials for TikTok. But much later, uh, oh, well, some of the videos started becoming effective. Some of the videos started to engage a public there on TikTok. And what we saw was that it's making the issues uh, more personal. The more personal, the more spontaneous it is on TikTok, uh, the more the, the audience there is able to relate. Um, so at the moment, it's an experiment. So we just take notes of what, what works. So uh, maybe that's part also of what new narratives is. It has to be more personal it has really has to be very relatable to the to the audience that we want to to speak to yeah thank you i would i would just like to ask both of you it's been fascinating to to have this this insight into your work but you've both been so engaged in petter's work for so long is there something that you feel particularly proud of having achieved through petter in the in the these past years, something that you look back on and you feel, yeah, we made a difference there. You mean as Peta or individually? Yeah, as Peta. Yeah, for for you for you individually or or for Peta, whichever, whatever you feel. I mean, I know Peta is is a collective thing, and and it's as much you as anyone else. <laughs> Maribel, I think that we brought the company. I mean. Uh, like I said, I, I, I've been in PETA longer than Cecilia Guidote. She left after five years. I've been there since its 10th anniversary, since I was 18 years old, and I'm retiring next year. So for me, I, I mean, I've seen through pretty much a lot of its histories, and I am fortunate by it because I went through its histories, whether it was its aesthetic, pedagogical, aesthetic, pedagogical, or even the whole historical, political context of a country. So, for me, it's so, it's it's like breath. I think like bang, diba? Just, we, to us, peta is like breath. You know, it's like, 
is in our system and we we saw it through the times for it developed its aesthetic it's the early years was about developing aesthetics pedagogy and then later on our generation with bang no it's basically developing and turning it in, in, into the institution um and the infrastructure of the building there's no other company in the philippines i think or or even all over Asia, pretty much, and that has what we have, meaning we own our own building, it was independently be produced without borrowing money from anybody, and we have been able to sustain this building for the last 17 years. And it hasn't been easy, yeah, but because it took us about 10 years to answer, no, bring the sustainability issue with, with lot, again, a lot of hit and miss, but we were so... I think for me, we were still, in in spite of that, we are always been fortunate that we've had the possibility to learn, uh, succeed, and then make a mistake, and then learn again, and then and to do that over time and develop a center, develop people. Um, I think on a very personal note, oh, it was one of the things that before the pandemic was like the, the rack of ages helped contribute that shift into the interest to Filipino musicals. To me, that's something, especially in the Metro Manila. Yes, sure, it was a jukebox musical, but after that, so many other companies saw, hey, it's possible Filipinos will watch Filipino musicals and not always the Broadway imports that we got. And for me, that was really, really important. You know what I mean? And But it took so long to get there. But you know what I mean? We finally did. And um, so, yeah, it's been that. But, but I always say that we're so fortunate because we're old. We've had the time to learn, I think. Right? Oh, for me, I think it's what you mentioned earlier, Arlene. Uh, I think if there's anything we can be proud of in PETA, it's really PETA's ability to evolve and transform itself uh, through various situations and periods of our history so that it can continue to do good art that is relevant. I, I think that's one quality of PETA that has allowed it also to reach, what, 55, 56 years. And the day that we are not able to do that, that's the end of PETA. Uh, that's why that's always the challenge. And uh, my, my wish is that uh, this, this passion of being, of being adaptable, but really being able to find our relevance and meaning and how we will do things as, as the times change. I hope that that is something also that our next generation of leaders uh, uh, have imbibed because that is really, I think, the key to PETA. And to your question, uh, Francois, it, it's, it's, it's how we are able to, re to keep the vision, uh, to keep the vision. So that despite our evolution, uh, our our vision keeps us. You know, it's like our anchor. No, it's like our anchor, our our compass. That's that's one. On a personal note, I think it's two things. Uh, well, one, it's the theater center because that theater center uh, really took place during our period as leaders. Uh, and uh, yeah, that wasn't easy. That wasn't easy to, to make that happen, but it happened. And when it happened, oh my goodness, it was harder pala when you have a theater center. It presented a whole new set of challenges, but uh, we're still around, so I guess we're able to manage it. And second, really, uh, seriously, uh, the amount of pressure that this leadership had to go through during the pandemic, I'm really also proud that we're still around. 
you know, uh, yeah, we are in the company of friends. There were several moments when we would sometimes think, what, is it time to give up already? Because it's not only what are we gonna do, we have such a big overhead. You have a center that is not doing anything because there's nothing happening. Uh, but since we're still here and we were able to, you know, you know, go over the hump of the pandemic, uh, I'm, I'm also very, very proud of that. Absolutely. You guys, you are so inspiring. And I don't say stuff like that, like most of the time Francois can testify. But, you know, he, he and I have these little dialogues like every third podcast or whatever where we we fetch and moan about the state of you know community-based arts and all the challenges that it's facing and stuff like that just with the two of us and we've been talking a lot lately about noticing how many groups have been pushed off course by like funders policy makers the conditions you know that people are presented with and um made to adapt to and you adapt and you adapt and you adapt and you lost you lost your way. You know, you discover you lost your way. So I just want to salute you again. I hope this will be really inspiring for everybody who listens to it to to hear the story of, of a group of people who've given so much and accomplished so much and not lost their way, still have those same values of people power that that, that you had at the beginning. So th thank you so much. And uh, Francois, would you, do you want to say something in closing? Thank you both, Maribel and Bang. It's been wonderful to to hear this. And you know, I I, I agree with what everything that, that Arlene has just said. It, it's inspiring to to listen to your story and to 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 see how much you've done. I I do think I have great admiration for um, people who are working in. Uh, what should we say? Difficult circumstances with little support and, and sometimes in political tensions and, and with all kinds of, of, of challenges. I, I really feel that the, the, the work that, that you do is, it, well, it, it makes me confident, uh, of community art and, and its value. Um, and, uh, I think there's a lot that we can learn from you in richer countries about how to, to stick to, to our principles and find ways to do good work uh, despite the, the political context in which we live. So thank you. Thank you also. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us and giving us this platform to share, especially, I mean, since you're saying we're the like the first Asian or Filipino group that is it. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.